Making our world more sustainable to preserve it for future generations will take not just one, but many solutions. Researchers at Whitehead Institute are exploring how the natural world could teach us to improve the sustainability of how we produce food, how we make medicines, how we make products more durable, and potentially how we remove carbon from the atmosphere. I'm Connor Guerin, Digital Media Specialist at Whitehead Institute. In this special episode of Audio Helicase, we'll hear from researchers at the Institute that are pursuing creative solutions to sustainability that combine a passion for making a difference with boundless curiosity for the living world. Whitehead Institute member Jinka Weng studies the natural products made by plants and animals and how we can use the tools of biological engineering to solve problems in drug discovery and beyond. In this episode, we'll hear from four graduate students and the Wang Lab, Carly Martin on figuring out how to support crop plants' microbiomes during climate change, Colin Kim on learning how to make medicine with fewer environmental impacts by learning from plants, and Joe Jakobowitz and Sophia Shu on how we can produce more durable coatings for metal products and even develop carbon-capturing organisms using plant-based processes. Wang Lab graduate student Carly Martin is branching out in a new direction for the lab, helping global agriculture become more sustainable. I joined a plant biology lab because I think that there's this great opportunity for biologists in engineering for agriculture specifically and adapting to climate change through um, agricultural engineering. I'm excited about this project just because I am deeply motivated by research that is climate change relevant. And I think that uh, biology and bioengineering is uniquely well positioned to address some of the huge problems that um, we'll have to adapt to in a climate that has drastically changed. Um, And specifically in like the agricultural realm, I think that we'll have to engineer crops that are more robust or use crops that are more resilient in a harsh climate. The consequences of climate change extend far beyond the atmosphere and weather patterns. Carly is exploring how a warming climate could affect the microbial communities that live in the soil. Plants need these soil microbes because they provide nitrogen in a form that the plants can use. We, I think like on a molecular level, don't really understand soil biology very well. Um, And that's something that is also uh, very dramatically impacted by climate change. You know, perhaps if we kind of had a better understanding about the relationship between soil microbiome composition and plants. Perhaps we don't have to necessarily engineer the plants, but we could sort of like dope in certain beneficial uh, bacteria into um, those symbiotic relationships to improve crop yield and uh, robustness. The key is to figure out the ideal mix of soil microbes for supporting crops. The plants themselves may have strategies for influencing their microbial partners. Carly is investigating one potential way that plants could manage their microbes by producing a special class of chemicals in their roots. Right now, I'm studying this class of peptides in plants called RIPs. That stands for ribosomally synthesized post-translationally modified peptides. So kind of a mouthful, but RIPs are like a really interesting class of peptide because they're short and they adopt these very unconventional shapes and they have very interesting bioactive properties, and they can be very heavily modified, and so their bioactivity can change. ACE inhibitors are an example of a RIP. Many, like, venoms have RIPs, poisons. They also are used in, like, antibiotics in some cases. And so 
there's not sort of like a consensus as to what they might be doing, especially in plants. And so our hypothesis is that they're mediating some kind of like root microbe interaction, but the root has its own microbiome um, that's very well known in plants like soybean that require uh, like a symbiosis between nitrogen fixing microbes, but all plants have a microbiome. There's still much to learn about these small proteins that could mediate the conversation between a plant's roots and the microbes in the soil around it. So Carly is taking a broad approach. One thing that we're thinking about doing is just kind of doing a broad characterization of rips in agriculturally relevant plants um, and having sort of like a matched microbiome uh, census for those plants. Uh, I'm very interested in just generally characterizing this really interesting class of peptides in plants. Seeing if and how rips affect the soil microbiome and then how the microbiome then affects plants' gene expression in turn, could help us better understand what soil conditions are best for growing crops. Those things could potentially inform potential soil management or microbiome engineering around crop species. For kind of my initial project, I'm uh, focusing on soybean just because that um, microbiome has been very well uh, characterized um, in you know a lot of ways, and it's very agriculturally relevant. Carly wanted her project to provide information directly useful to farmers. The best way to do that, she realized, would be to call up some farmers herself and learn what challenges they're facing. I basically just like emailed a bunch of (laughs) farms that were local. There's this one in like northern Pennsylvania, Charland Farms. The farm provided Carly with soy plants straight from their fields. It was actually very cool to interact with uh, the the farmer um, who provided me with the samples, Tim Stewart. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a family farm and they grow many different types of uh, produce. I have to have a, um, a good understanding of the problems that people are experiencing on the ground due to climate change. And so that is also a, a really exciting thing that's beginning in my work right now is just kind of this collaboration between uh, this Charland Farms and, uh, and our lab. Now that I've been thinking about these problems, I realize how huge they are and how big of an effort is needed in order to address them. And so that makes me much more invested in uh, building teams, building collaborations, getting to know people that exist and like work and are affected by, um, by this problem at like many different levels. Part of the teamwork we need to solve our world's problems with sustainability is teaming up with the plants themselves. Colin Kim, a graduate student in the Wang Lab, is seeking to learn chemistry from the plant world. Plants are excellent chemists. They're able to produce these complex compounds uh, in nature, and plants have evolved for millions of years to do this. Um, So they use primary metabolites like amino acids or nucleic acids, uh, a lot of these um, metabolites that are found commonly in organisms, and Plants have evolved specialized metabolism where they're able to use these substrates from primary uh, metabolism to actually build on top of these uh, molecules and create a very highly complex structure uh, that are of medicinal importance. The success of plants as chemists has made them crucial to medicine. For thousands of years, people have harvested plants for the medicinal compounds they contain. But this has become a problem for many plant species with dwindling populations in the wild. In many cases, the only alternative for producing the drugs at large scales involved chemical reactions that create harmful byproducts. 
neither of these approaches tend to be sustainable. Now, Colin and others in Jenka Wang's lab are looking to plants to show them a better way. We are trying to harness uh, how plants are actually synthesizing these. It's quite interesting because, you know, when we look at how biochemical reactions and biochemical transformations happen, uh, a lot of these reactions take place in water, right? Like uh, in aqueous uh, solutions and in opposed to like organic chemical synthesis, we're using organic solvents and uh, it produces a lot of toxic waste to the environment. And those organic solvents, like the environmental harm that it causes, it accumulates in the earth and we don't know how to efficiently get rid of the organic solvents that are, that we end up using. Whereas when we look into nature, nature has already optimized the setting and the solvent and the environment for these very complex biochemical reactions and biochemical transformations to take place. By discovering the process through which a plant species produces a medicinal chemical, scientists could then recreate that process in a common plant species like the tobacco plant, or in a microbe like yeast. Colin's research focuses on a plant called moonseed. One of the projects that I'm heavily uh, looking into currently uh, is to really characterize how these moonseed vines are able to uh, synthesize these chlorinated um, tetracyclic structure alkaloid, um, which has interesting bioactivities, including potential anti-leukemia and uh, memory enhancing. And it also exhibits cytotoxicity uh, to human cultured T cells as well. Um, So yeah, this alkaloid is pretty complex in structure. Synthetic chemists have uh, synthesized it, um, but we actually don't know how plants are naturally making these, uh, mostly accumulated in the root tissues of these uh, plant vines. Plants have the potential to guide the development of new drugs and how to produce them more sustainably. The natural product pool is actually like a very exciting uh, field for drug discovery. And actually, in fact, approximately one third of all existing pharmaceuticals today, they do have a plant origin. Uh, So it's very exciting and uh, still underexplored as to how plants are making these compounds. And elucidating these biosynthetic pathways will give rise to a lot of different uh, potential methods and alternative routes to synthesizing these potential drug candidates. Plants excel at creating chemicals with special properties, but they're also inventive in how they use their tissues to protect themselves from the outside world. Wang Lab graduate student Joe Jacobowitz studies how plants defend their pollen from the summer sun and winter chill. You know, when we're growing crops, if they become stressed sort of at the wrong time of the growing season, like if there's a drought or if there's like a cold snap or a heat wave, something that can happen is the plants become sterile. And that's a problem, especially if like you're growing the crops to collect the seeds, because the seeds is like the product of the fertilization. So if the plant is sterile, then you get no seeds and then you get no crop. Joe has shed light on why stress can make plants sterile by studying Arabidopsis, a model plant species. His research revealed that plants require two specific genes to make the tapetum, the plant tissue that nourishes and protects pollen grains. The genes produce proteins in the tapetum that act like the mortar holding together the bricks in a wall. When the genes are knocked out, the tapetum collapses and the plant can't make pollen. And one of the things that's been observed with these stress-induced sterile crops is that the tapetum sort of swells. 
which is the same thing that I saw in my um, mutant plants of Arabidopsis. And it's not really understood why the swelling happens, and I think my research maybe provides a little bit of insight into why it's happening, um, which might help us to prevent it from happening with crops. These findings could prove important to raising crop plants as climate change becomes more severe and increases stress on plants. But the tapetum isn't the only line of defense for pollen grains. The grains themselves are coated with sporopollenin, one of the toughest compounds in the living world. Sporopollenin is basically like a shell that protects pollen grains. Yeah, sporopollenin is this material that is, it's actually like the toughest biopolymer that is known in nature. So it's like, and it's really not well understood. You know, it's not understood what makes it so much tougher than all the other polymers that organisms are making. And it's not understood how it was made. So what Jinko was interested in doing was sort of pursuing the, those questions in the lab. And that was like sort of what I began on when I, when I joined the lab. So I spent a lot of time essentially trying to find genes that we, you know, that are involved in sporopollenin biosynthesis. And then from there, trying to figure out what those genes are doing and how they're actually like contributing to making this like polymer. Unlike most of the plant's tissues, pollen has to make a perilous journey from one flower to another. It has to survive harsh conditions. Sometimes it gets attached to insects. Sometimes it's being pushed around by wind. So it's experiencing high light conditions. It's experiencing very dry conditions. And, you know, it's like this really important part of the plant life cycle because without pollen, for most plants, without pollen, you're not going to get the next generation. So we think that spore pollen is really important. It needs to be so strong because the pollen is such a vulnerable part of the plant life cycle. Like the, the strength of spore pollen is sort of proportional to the vulnerability of pollen. And the remarkable properties of spore pollen could make it useful for other things, says Sophia Shu, a grad student in the Wang lab, who's exploring how plants make spore pollen. This thing is extremely durable. Uh, it withstands both physical and, and chemical um, forces, I guess. So previous genetic studies have identified some of the enzymes that are involved in making sporopollenin. Uh, I'm interested in more on the biochemistry and enzymology side. Um, I'm taking some of these enzymes and, and now we know what the chemical structure of sporopollenin looks like. We can like start to, to guess like this enzyme like falls into this class of biosynthetic enzymes. So we think it might be making this modification to sporopollenin. So that is what I've been trying to test. A material that resists breaking down could have uses in protecting metallic products from the elements and making them last longer, reducing the need to manufacture more. One of the interesting applications that, that Jinka likes to talk about is if you have this durable coating that can also withstand weather, it might be a useful coating for, for things like bikes, which are, especially in Boston winters, prone to to rusting. But that's not all. If engineered plants could produce spore pollen in large amounts, not just coating their pollen, but also produced elsewhere on the plant, they could be used to store large amounts of carbon and permanently remove it from the atmosphere, explains Joe Jacobowitz. There is an idea that's beginning to gain traction in like plant biology in general, which is to use plants which can sequester carbon dioxide and like use them to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and then sort of like bury it in these uh, polymers, which are very like carbon dense, essentially. 
It's like one of the toughest biopolymers there are. It's, we have actually have no idea how it's degraded in nature. The more decay resistant it is, sort of like the more permanent the sequestration of the carbon dioxide is. So the idea would just be to make plants that make a lot of sporopollenin. The first step, says Sophia Shu, is to figure out how plants manufacture sporopollenin in their cells so that scientists can harness the process and potentially engineer carbon-capturing organisms. If we can understand what these enzymes are doing, uh, one of the pra- practical applications is, is definitely to engineer systems, uh, I guess not even just plants, to be able to make more sporopollenin um, and do the carbon sequestration that way. To accomplish this ambitious goal, researchers in the Wang Lab will work together with Whitehead Institute member Mary Gehring, who specializes in plant molecular biology and genomics, with Whitehead Institute member Jonathan Weissman, who will provide expertise in precision genome editing, as well as Zhuanghe Zhao in MIT's Department of Mechanical Engineering, who will guide the design and testing of biopolymers. Working on science that can help our society become more sustainable helps deal with the anxiety caused by climate change, says Carly Martin. I mean, I feel kind of more motivated than I ever have before because I I walk outside and I experience the effects of climate change every day. It's something that is that is impossible to ignore. When you are a biologist, you have this clear perspective about how climate change is threatening, you know, natural ecosystems, but also your own existence. Working on such a big problem is a great way to, <laughs> to make yourself a little bit less worried about it because at least you know that you're, that you're doing as much as you can to address it. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly rewarding and I think has honestly just been great for my own mental health because a problem is much less scary if you understand it and know that the thing that you're working on might end up helping it a little bit. You can learn more about sustainability research at Whitehead Institute on our website at wi.mit.edu. Find past episodes of Audio Helicase and stay tuned for new ones by subscribing on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.